Welcome to the Chameleons podcast. In this episode, we meet Eric Bauman, a technology leader, CTO at TomTom, and a former executive at Zalando and Gilt Group, with a rich software engineering and architecture background. Eric is a seasoned technologist with a fascinating background spanning from his early days as a mountaineer in Montana to his groundbreaking work on The Sims game and now exploring the potential of generative AI. Join us as we dive into Eric's journey, his insights on the importance of purpose and values and how he utilizes AI to enhance his decision-making and productivity. We'll also discuss the concept of the adjacent possible, the importance of listening and learning, and the potential of AI to revolutionize education and help us realize our full potential. I hope you enjoyed this engaging conversation with this exceptional technology leader and creative thinker who thrives on challenging the status quo. This is the Chameleons Podcast. And I'm your host, Imak Samrana. Before we start, just a quick mention of a new sponsor. Nomono is a Norwegian company dedicated to improving and simplifying podcasting. Their portable sound capsule is easy and intuitive to use. You simply put on their Wi-Fi connected multi-track recorder, use the four high-quality wireless mics to record, and it gets automatically uploaded to your very own Nomono cloud where the AI-powered audio enhancement provides exceptional audio quality. I used the Nomono Portable Podcasting Kit to record myself in this episode, and I will continue to use it in future interviews, because I can't see how I would be able to continue podcasting without it. Check out their website on nomono.co. I highly recommend it. And now, the conversation with Eric Bowman. Welcome, Eric. I'm really, really excited to have this conversation with you. Thanks. Really great to be here. Your background is so varied and you've done so many things. Perhaps we could just start there and talk about what's your story. Yeah, I have hopped around uh, <laughs> a little bit in my life. I grew up in Montana and that was an amazing place to grow up in so many ways. You know, My father was an avid mountaineer and my family was very into outdoor sports, ski racing and hiking and climbing. And I was the youngest and just sort of got sucked up into a worldview around that. And our vacations were very often spent, you know, backpacking and we had a cabin in the mountain and mountains. Mm. So we didn't really travel too mm. much. And, you know, the experience of kind of early on, honestly, kind of being forced to push <laughs> myself. Apparently, I was a pretty whiny little kid carrying a backpack sometimes. <laughs> so I salute my parents for sticking with it. But, uh, you know, some of those experiences really have carried with me to this day. And, you know, there are some, sometimes you have, have these experiences in your life that you continually deja vu back to or frequently and certainly you know the mm -hmm. feeling of climbing a mountain remains one of the it's almost a mystical experience for me and the yeah. remembering the struggle and the fear and the elation and then just the 
feeling of sky and distance and aloneness, you know, and it's certainly not a team sport in a traditional sense, but your life very much depends upon the behavior of the people that you're with and the very kind of seminal early experiences for me. But I left Montana. I went to a boarding school on the East Coast in the United States. And that was something of a culture shock. But, you know, I was yeah. kind of, I guess I would call myself a kind of smart kid. And <laughs> I was sort of getting into trouble a little bit in school and had the opportunity to really level up this educational experience. And it was not easy to go to an establishment boarding school as a kid from Montana. And I, I did not take full advantage of that experience in every way that I could have. Like many people, I think I look back and say, wow, I'd love to go back and have that again. But at the same time, that experience and you know the educational experience of very good teachers who were really there to teach, a lot of kids who were really switched on, had a lot of different perspectives. This was the 1980s. And the kind of intense academic environment really suited me. And I had some ups and downs during that period, but similar to the feelings of having climbed mountains, I regularly look back at the rigor of that intellectual time mm. and, yeah. and I'm incredibly grateful. And it is for me a constant reminder in my life of how important good teachers are for kids and how very lucky I was. Mm -hmm. I went I went from there to college. I made a bad choice initially for me personally and I after the first year I took a year off. I moved to Seattle and actually got a job working for Boeing Electronics which was like kind of the military technology oh. part of Boeing. I came mm. in as a temp worker. I was a replacement for some senior manager's secretary for a week. How old um, were you then? I, I was 18 or 19, I guess. Mm. And in that week, I managed to sort out some of their email technology problems and met someone who ended up becoming quite a good friend over the years. And they ended up hiring me. And I was the kind of human computer for this old guy, an English electrical engineer who had made Boeing a fortune in the 1960s with the Minuteman missile program, apparently. And I used to go and sit in his office. I would haul in a computer and he would sit there and we would talk about ideas and I would kind of code them up and we would look at it and a very <laughs> unconventional, <laughs> but actually a very memorable experience. Like a mentor or what would you call it? Is so him on his own, he was not that directly influential on me. But the overall experience, the people I was working with and the environment was, you know, quite foundational for me in lots of ways. And I was really trying to figure out what I wanted to do. I had wanted to be a physicist coming out of high school or maybe physics and philosophy. And this was a more hands-on practical experience in some ways, although it was also quite quite theory based mm -hmm. but i was i was hanging around in the u district in seattle and i was in a bar and i started talking to this guy and he had just graduated <laughs> from reed college with a philosophy degree and during that conversation i realized that reed college was where i needed to be oh. and so i applied and essentially transferred so i came in as a, a sophomore and there had just an incredible experience. I studied physics and taught myself a lot about programming. We didn't have a computer science program. Instead, they had a, a lab when they would pay students basically to write software for the college. Oh, 
And so I kind of did that on the side for money. I still continued to want to be a physicist and I took a very theoretical physics path while there. But all the time I was programming on the side and really kind of enjoying the programming part quite a lot. And when I graduated, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. I could tell that I was torn. I just didn't know what my path was. And some of the software that I had written turned out to be really quite helpful. And I was written for the biology department. And they ended up getting a grant from the Howard Hughes Medical Foundation to continue that work. And so they just hired me. And I got an office and I continued to live like a student, except I was getting paid and working. I kept programming for a few years. And then a friend of mine's dad, I, well, and so during this time, I, I started going to a restaurant that was, it was a tiny little restaurant. It was was two guys. They were open, uh, you know, one front of house, one back of house. And they were open Mm -hmm. from 6 PM till 4 AM. And the menu was very kind of binary. They had <laughs> very, very cheap things, cheap food. So dollar beers and dollar fifty mac and cheese or twenty dollar jambalaya and you know, forty to sixty dollar bottles of only French wine. Oh gosh. And it, <laughs> and, and, <laughs> it was weird. So mac and cheese and expensive wine. <laughs> yeah, and it, but it was you know, it pulled together a very kind of diverse, at least socioeconomically diverse group of people because it's open till four in the morning. It became kind of a hangout. And I became friends with the owner and a regular, and I ate there, I don't know, hundreds of times. Yeah. And Did you meet the same people or that the same customers that were coming back? So some, day? yeah. And I became yeah. friends with the kitchen and friend, you know, it kind of started to grow. And I, I tried to bring different people there all the time. So I, I mean, I, I went, you know, like 90 days in a row or something. Yeah. And I tried to bring different people all mm. the time and uh, became great friends with the owner and uh, found my, you know, I was part of a scene basically, mm. and really for the first time in my life. And that ended up being kind of a, a gravitational force field for Portland, which is where Reed is located. You know, this kept up for a couple of years. And then one night in the restaurant, the father of a good friend of mine said, Hey, I'm thinking of doing a, a startup, creating video editing software for people who are kind of not experts. And we really hit it off. And before I knew it, I was moving to Santa Monica to work for this guy and uprooted my very comfortable kind of (laughs) hipster or proto hipster existence (laughs) in Portland and moved to Santa Monica. And it turned out I was nowhere near ready (laughs) to (laughs) actually (laughs) lead in the way he needed me to lead, nor I think was he fully prepared for being a founder and it lasted about three months. And, well, you and tried it. <laughs> I tried, yeah. Uh, but I was, you know, I, I didn't have a car. I didn't have a computer. I was actually, you know, kind of on the edge. And suddenly oh. it's like, well, okay, this is over. And I started sort of looking around. And at the time, uh, there was thing Usenet, which was this kind of global bulletin board. And mm. there was a job posting for this company, Maxis, which had created SimCity. Mm. I was not a computer game player, mm. but I was aware of SimCity. Mm. I mean, it was kind of cover of Time magazine stuff. Mm. And I talked to this guy, a guy named Jim Macras, and we totally hit it off. <laughs> he's like, well, I'd love to hire you. So he, he couldn't fund my travel to get to the Bay Area. 
So I was like, oh boy, I don't know what to do here. I ended up I connected with a kind of a high-end recruiter and he was very helpful, an Irish guy. And he set up some interviews for me in the Bay Area. And I piggybacked on the back of one of those interviews to get to have an interview at Maxis. I showed up a little bit early. This was <laughs> 1995 in a car rented for me by some other company's talent acquisition <laughs> process. I look back and kind of cringe. I showed up early and the very first book that I bought from Amazon was a book called Design Patterns, which became a very, very influential book in the software engineering community in the kind of late mm -hmm. 90s, and early 2000s. And so while I was waiting for the interview, I was reading the book. And then I went in and sat down with this guy, Jim, and I had mentioned that I was something of an expert on design patterns, which was <laughs> the book had been out for about three weeks at that point. So it was a bit of a rich claim. But he described one of the problems that would come up in a game like SimCity. And he mm -hmm. said, Are, you know, what kind of design patterns would you apply here? And mm -hmm. the, the actual design pattern that was the answer was the one that I had been reading about you know, 15 <laughs> minutes earlier in the oh parking gosh. lot. Oh and, uh, so I kind of hit that one out of the park. Oh, uh, he was so impressed, probably. <laughs> yeah, it was. It was. I mean, it was. And we became great friends. He was best man at my wedding, and you know, oh. and we're still quite close. And he was a wonderful mentor and influence on me. But so I, you know, figured out how to get up to the Bay Area. I, so I went back, actually, I was living in Santa Monica in the converted garage, very eccentric, older Hungarian woman who, had, if I recall correctly, had been Miss Hungary 1956. Wow. And she had become something of a, of a hoarder. Oh, wow. And it was a very chaotic world that she was living in, but that was sort of perfect for me because it was affordable and I figured I was going to have plenty of privacy. It turned out she had sold the house and had not moved out, oh. unbeknownst to me. And, and so I came back, just a certain amount of chaos. <laughs> he said, well, the sheriff may be coming soon. So I very quickly gathered my stuff up oh. and rented a U-Haul and drove drove north to the Bay Area. And oh. my actually- That's the crazy. One of my you good had nowhere to stay. You just yeah, it's really <laughs> tough. I, I tell this story to my wife and, and she's like, why did you not ask your parents for help? And it's, I don't know. <laughs> I do not know. I, yeah. Wow. Why didn't you? That's so interesting. That's a good question. Well, I think I must have been a little embarrassed. I don't know. Yeah. It, was, it was a tricky situation. Yeah. But one of my good friends that I had made at Boeing connected mm. me with someone who had a flat, a basement flat in San Francisco, and it all sort of smoothly transitioned. And <laughs> before I knew it, I was working at this company, Maxis. That, you know, fast forward several years, that led to The Sims. And, mm -hmm. you know, it was kind of many fortuitous things came together for that to, <laughs> for that yeah. to happen. But I think it was an early lesson and, you know, like when there's a knock at the door, you got to open the door. Oh, and, I love you know, that. You got to kind of believe things are going to work out. I, I read recently about how there have been some studies about luck <laughs> and why some people seem to be more lucky and some people seem to be less lucky. And uh, they're talking mm -hmm. about what's your surface area for luck. You know, if you walk around and you only look at the street compared to walking around and you're really kind of aware is a significant difference over time mm. over what kind of opportunities will present themselves to you indirectly. Right, right. And uh, I was In, open to the opportunities. It's kind of, if you, like, I love that picture of someone walking and not seeing the lottery ticket on the street corner because they're yeah. so focused on where they're going, like, to work. 
uh, or to some doing some task that they done thousand tasks before and then not seeing that opportunity lying there. Well, so that's the, the power of mindfulness, you know, it's, mm. like, a lot of people over the last decade have discovered mindfulness. And as I explored it, I realized, you know, that I, I've kind of gone in and out in my life. Sometimes I have been more mindful than others. But mm. when you recognize how much of your time, most people, they're either thinking about the future or they're thinking about the past yeah. and how that is robbing everyone of the present you know it's so incredible when you say that one of the amazing skill sets that we have compared to a lot of animals at least from what we know is that kind of ability to not only be in the present but also be able to connect the past present and future into much more complex plans and creations based on that and oh yeah but in a way what you're saying here is that if we lose sight of the present, then we're actually not seeing everything that's happening here and now. And that is also a disadvantage. So a skill set that we humans have to see ahead and look backwards is actually depriving us of that kind of connectedness to everything that's here. Absolutely. And, mm. you know, it's funny that you say that because there's a mental model for part of what you just described called the theory of adjacent possible. Mm -hmm. Have you ever heard of this? I heard of it, but could you explain it? Yeah. Let me, let me do my best. So it's due to a fellow named Stuart Kaufman, who was a Santa Fe Institute kind of complexity researcher and focused a lot on biological evolution. And he started with kind of a f formula. I think the story is kind of on a napkin over lunch for how to model certain kinds of evolution in a way that also includes innovation. And this is in the 90s. And that over time has emerged as something that people call the theory of adjacent possible. It is kind of this idea that, well, so there are a couple different ways that people describe how this works. One is to say, if you think about innovation as a random process, which it is not exactly, but it does have some similarities with a random process. So with a random process, you could simulate it. You have a big bucket or bowl of balls. And let's say each ball has a label on it that represents some invention. And so you you take a ball out and, you know, if it's the, one of the classical examples of like, okay, say it says dancing. Okay, we've invented dancing now. And then the mm. question is, what do you do with that ball? or what happens to the bowl. And what happens is that you add a bunch of new balls to the bowl for all the different kinds of dancing, which have yet to be discovered. Mm. And sometimes like in the current moment, for example, with a uh, generative AI, the number of balls that gets added into the bucket is totally overwhelming. <laughs> I believe that, it, well, most people are not directly aware of it in those terms, mm. you know, when these events happen, it can be quite disorienting for people. Mm. People are not accustomed to or comfortable with a rapid expansion of possibility. It's not intuitive. We're not really wired to deal with that. Some people are wired better able to deal with that. And there's another mental model This is not my invention, but it has really stayed with me. You can sort of think about that. There's two different there's kind of countable things and uncountable things in the following sense that, for example, if you were trying to plan your future or if you're a company trying to figure out what are you going to do, there's sort of a countable number of things that you can mm. decide. I mean, obviously, you could try to make it 
uncountable, but fundamentally you can write down, you can make a list and that list, you you know, depending on how much time you spend on it might feel pretty exhaustive, at least for rational things that you could do. Right. But that situation is fundamentally different than if you try to say, count the number of uses for a screwdriver. Most people would think that they're sort of the same, but there's this very fundamental difference between those two ideas. You know, 20 years ago, we could not count pry open your iPhone because mm -hmm. iPhones didn't exist. And so what Adjacent Possible is about is like, this is what exists now. And there's a set of things that could be sort of our next state, mm. Will, depending on the scale of the system that you're looking at. And when we go from here to there, there's going to be a whole new set of possibilities that is literally impossible for us to imagine. It's kind and of a reorganization of everything as soon as you get these more generalized tools that can be applied to many different tasks and different operations, but they still have the same fundamental programming as a basis, it's kind of like with the human mind early on, like we can do simple things with our minds and we perceive the world in simple terms uh, yeah. early on. We take in one impression at a time and we might use multimodal scale sets in order to, to process that. But over time, as we get more and more templates for how the world works and we understand, we start to organize it in more and more complex ways. And then suddenly- exactly we end up in a new level where that opens up a much more complex understanding of the world. And every time we, in a way, upgrade our system, it's almost like a whole new level. It's like the view on the hill is kind of changing all the time. And suddenly you can exactly. see distances you couldn't even imagine just a few years ago. Exactly. It's kind of the difference between what is learnable and what is only experienceable. Mm. You know, I have a, a son who's got one more year before university, and we have a wonderful kind of intellectual relationship. He's switched on, he's interested in <laughs> philosophy, and he likes to argue. And, <laughs> and I love that, you know? Yes. Uh, and I always have to stop myself from doing one of the things which infuriated me the most. Yes, right. <laughs> when I was his age, which is that, well, you know, as you get older, <laughs> you will feel differently about this, you know? And, and I mm. rejected that idea. And, you know, he kind of, mm. I try not to push him on that, but I'm pretty mm. sure he rejects that idea. Yes. And, you know, it is simply like, however smart you are, however yeah. much you know or have learned or read, at mm -hmm. the end of the day, the nature of experience is, you know, is changes worth everything. Lot, worth a lot. Yeah, it's interesting. So he started studying something that you started studying early on. Yeah, well, he wants to study physics. And, you know, it's obviously kind of amazing oh. for me to experience him going through that since I went through that. But I also, I know it's ahead of him. Good and bad, <laughs> but I, I it is impossible for me to try to dissuade him because mm -hmm. studying physics gives you access to some of the most beautiful intellectual ideas that humans mm -hmm. have ever created. So yeah. I would never want to deprive anyone of that. No, but one does give up other things. I wonder how it will be for young people now choosing what they're going to study compared to just a few years ago. Now that people are really understanding the kind of technological possibilities that are awaiting us and with regards to job opportunities and whether the skill sets that you're actually developing in your educational 
trajectory is going to be applicable for anything. It's fascinating yeah. to see if those fields that are really focusing on an in-depth understanding of the world in a way, both the physical world and the complex social world and all of those kind of perspective taking theoretical fields are actually going to that people will enjoy that a lot again i i don't know i mean so in a way are we going to get more thinkers again than doers i feel right. like oh, is that going to change you know yeah i mean it's again in terms of the adjacent possible it's overwhelming consider what is now possible that was not previously, you know, I, I don't know. It seems very mm. much to me as though there are very likely to be dramatic changes in yeah. how work is done and ideally probably less growth be needed in the future and a mm. rebalancing of what, it, you know, if you look in, in medical terms, kind of, you know, optimizing for patient outcome, our economic system clearly needs to optimize mm. for a different outcome besides growth yeah, or growth for the sake of growth. It's possible that the moment of generative AI coinciding with a moment of what feels like significant environmental and ecological change mm -hmm. could help trigger a much more sustainable way for our children to live. There's a guy, Ralph Herbrick is a friend of mine. He's at the Hassel Plattner Institute. He's been talking about a new kind of Turing test. He's an AI researcher where it's no longer about whether or not an AI can pass the Turing test or another human into thinking that they are also human. It also has to use less energy than a human would. And I thought that was a very interesting perspective because on the one hand, one might look at the generative AI future, which we're less than a year into. And yeah. There's some very optimistic ways to look at this as well. Obviously, there are many doomsday scenarios, and yeah. that tends to get the attention. But this could literally revolutionize education for yeah. the world. Yes. But then the question is, can we actually afford the energy or can the planet afford the energy that would be required to roll it out at that scale? And then it becomes more in the doomsday direction. Like, okay, mm -hmm. so this may be only a tool for the very, very, or literally say the top 2% or something. Wow. Yeah. And I wonder if it has to result in more focus on developing techniques and, and technology that can extract energy from other new means or maybe even from outer space. I don't yeah. know if we even have enough resources on the planet to sustain that kind of growth that we're seeing now yeah. uh, when it comes to, so maybe that will be interesting to see if there are any real attempts started on thinking about where do we get this energy from? Yeah. Well, that's obviously a hot topic. <laughs> <laughs> maybe that's why there's so much focus on, you know, the outer space basically right yeah. now. Yeah. Well, it's fascinating also, like with AI and generative AI right now, a lot of the skills that we're teaching children in school to read or to write, all of that, those are just tools in order to retrieve information and gather knowledge and share knowledge that yeah. are tools. It's just like human-made tool, but the essential goal is just to get that information in and out. And so... In a way, the ability to read and the ability to write, we're not really dependent on that right. uh, if it can be saved in other ways. And so I'm thinking about children who struggle to learn how to read and write with dyslexia or other challenges. They might actually now 
kind of jump over that stage. Even if, of course, reading is amazing and you learn a lot from that, you can you can listen to books. You can. Yeah. There are many ways to get hold of that information. And I think that's so fascinating now that yeah. we might change the direction of our educational systems completely. Yeah, that is long overdue as well. Yeah. <laughs> yes, uh, I agree. It's you know, the most important thing, I think, for anybody getting an education is really learning how to learn. Mm. Any specific thing, I mean, basically the fact that most of these tests can be passed by mm. a generative AI application yeah. is telling us that that's probably not the right way. Yeah. And uh, I think for me, the other thing is, you know, the most valuable on a child by child basis approach to education is phenomenal patience from teachers. Yeah. And humans are not great at that, but an AI can, in theory, absolutely match the ability of each student right. and help discover taking as much time as that student needs to figure out what, you know, what can that person contribute get away from you know ranking and instead a more customized approach for me that's one of the most inspiring possibilities the ability of humanity to i mean it's the, it's the foundation of civilization is you know some kind of justice some kind of education system some kind of healthcare, and then you know beyond that right <laughs> we got lost sometimes i feel like educational system got lost in in the idea of that the tools are the outcomes. Like yeah. acquiring the tools is kind of the outcome. Well, it's actually just a means. And, yeah. and also the fact that what you're saying there, it's so interesting that when an algorithm can replicate whatever we're trying to achieve in a few seconds, and we know that machine is not having a deep understanding of what it's producing, right? It's just patterns. And yeah. and how deep is that understanding that we are actually replicating then? Just how does it reflect back on what we are producing? So for me, one <laughs> of the big takeaways from 2023 yes. is that is an you know, essentially an existence proof that we are nowhere near as smart as we think we are. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we are also manipulating patterns and symbols and there, you know, there's this, this guy, Sam Harris, if you're familiar with him, you know, he, yes. he's somewhat controversial for his views around free will. Yeah. I, I was kind of aware of it and, and then I revisited it recently and I, I must say my experience with generative AI when I've gone pretty deep this year spent mm. hundreds of hours incorporated into every part of my life in a oh. kind of experimental way to try to understand what the strengths and weaknesses were and that mm. you know in my role as the CTO at TomTom you know mm. finding out the right way to bring the company into this for the benefit of customers and employees was a big deal and through that process I realized you know I don't know so you, you said it's not really doing the same thing we do. And one of the heuristics I apply to myself whenever mm. I think something is I try to also ask myself, what if I were completely wrong? And so I have explored a little bit. It's like, mm, I mean, you know, it's kind of a version one thing. But one possibility is that it is actually significantly closer to what our brains are doing than we are aware. 
And Sam Harris's discussion around free will kind of plays into that. You know, free will is kind of this, a lot of people's intuitive or academic and functional ideas around things like morality and Mm -hmm. ethics really depend on free will. And some people react very strongly against the idea of saying free will is not a thing. And if you do that, we descend into chaos. But Sam Harris's point I found really quite interesting, which is that we are, and we know this, that we are so much more subject to what's happening in our environment than we are aware. Yeah. And that is the kind of mechanism behind social media and the surveillance economy and surveillance capitalism. And I don't know if you're familiar with, what's her name? Shoshana Duboff's book on surveillance capitalism. No, ah, write so that down. Really, I mean, it's a tough, it's a tough yeah. slog. Okay, that's so uh, interesting. So, what is her take on that? Well, so she's a sociologist at Harvard and very smart, very well qualified, and the book is very well researched. And the first part of the book is really mm-hmm. looking at the in detail at the mechanism behind the business model of companies like Google and Facebook, Verizon as well, and. What they found was that the, I think she calls it the exhaust, the digital exhaust of mm. the internet, being able to collect and process that as sort of a gold mine. And we've mm. all given this away and mm. companies are able to monetize it in a, in a way that yeah. doesn't feel totally kosher, mm. but then they're using <laughs> that to influence our behavior, and mm. especially our shopping behavior. And then through the book, she kind of introduces this idea of what she calls it's not that this has become 1984-ish and that there is Big Brother watching us. She calls it Big Other. Uh. And Big Other is making more and more decisions for us mm. without our knowledge. Mm. And she relates it to a, a book called Walden 2, which published in the early 70s, which the author intended as a kind of utopia. And most people said, this is not a utopia. This is a dystopia. The main idea really was that removing people from the burden of constant decision is utopic. I'm sure, you know, Steve Jobs wearing the same clothes every day because he wanted to save his decision gunpowder for bigger decisions or whatever. There's something to it. But it is kind of a real phenomenon that we are far less in control of our decisions moment by moment than we think and have been taught. And did you see the Barbie movie? Yes, I did. <laughs> One scene that really stuck out with me when she floated down into the car, kind of emulating something that a child picked yeah. the Barbie up and put her in her car and off we go. I had a moment of reflection around that because we very often, I think, think of if we could take a person and put them in a different situation, we would expect them to make, you know, at least moral decisions. But it is so profoundly impossible to do that. We are absolutely wrapped up in all of our recent and not so recent experiences. I mean, mm. it is a mm. rich mm. tapestry, you know, yeah. wave function, and we're not aware of that. The uh, wiring, in a way, the wiring prior to that event. Yeah. Or prior to that new context. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, you have someone who's from a very different background than you are. Mm. making a decision where you impose a certain moral judgment on them in the context mm. of free will. And mm. for most people, it's like, yeah, you put yourself in their reality for a year. Mm. And then you tell me about that decision. There's mm. so many 
decisions that came before it and so many things for many people very much out of their control. Yeah, that's um, so fascinating. When people live in very unstable neighborhoods and you compare it to when people live in really safe environments and how kind of niceness is looked upon with almost like skepticism in one and in the, in the other context, it's expected and it's yeah. the only way to behave and how different that simple thing like it just triggers two completely different responses Uh, and when you put two people in the similar situation it's fascinating how one might respond in the complete opposite way to the exact same input absolutely and both of them in their context behaving completely rationally right exactly based on the worldview that has been created you know with their participation but they're Mm. in a context You know, the way I look at it is there's this spectrum where there's irrational kind of at both ends of the spectrum. And, you know, I love my parents and I appreciate them, but they were not super overtly loving in the Mm. way that later in my life, I experienced family life. My wife Mm. is Irish and there's a a very different approach. And with Mm. our children, her primary mission is to make them feel loved, know that they are loved. And that is unconditional love. And in a way that prepares them for a certain kind of irrational world. I think my parents were going for the middle. It's like Mm. the world is rational, have free will. You Mm. make your decisions, you do good things, good things will happen. You make poor decisions, poor things will happen. And that is kind of where it was. But at the other end of the spectrum, there are a lot of people, you know, especially people who grow up in abusive situations where the cause and effect is not happening. Mm. It is not that they did something wrong, Mm. and that is why something bad happened to them, although they may believe that. Very often in an abusive situation, it is for no real, obvious, clear, justifiable reason. Things just happen to you, and you grow up believing Mm. that there is not a rationality to the world, that bad things will happen for no reason whatsoever. And Mm. so growing up in that world, what is morality for those people based on that experience? Right. My parents tried to give me you know, very almost Kantian view of the world. And then mm. my own children are going out in the world. It's like, it is irrationally loved. You know, if they were on the run from the law, they would <laughs> probably come home because they would feel like that would be fine. And that, you know, there right. might be a discussion. About right, that, right. But, um, <laughs> but it's a strange spectrum. I, I, I've loved exploring that. I never kind of realized that spectrum before Mm. until I experienced the unconditional love that Mm. my wife has brought to our kids and our family. It's kind of amazing. And unconditional, like what you're saying there, a lot of people think they have unconditional love or show it. Yeah. And then unconditional is a little more than what people imagine. I think a lot of parents do think they have it. And then there are a lot of expectations and it comes expectations for love expectation for expression of love, for gratitude, for a loyalty. A lot of these expectations that are not really easy to measure. It's not like you need to have a great education and you need to have these grades, but it could be more expectations of how to behave, how to return the love. And that's not unconditional, which I find fascinating and really to be able to instill in them, the children, that they do have unconditional love that regardless of whatever choices that they don't owe anyone anything because they're loved, you know? 
They don't owe you anything because they're loved. Whatever they give is of their own free will. Yes. Or something. <laughs> or something. Maybe nothing is. But it's <laughs> fascinating what you're saying about free will and, and morality. It's kind of that wiring of people. I mean, when you work with people and you hire people, I guess you have experienced a lot of different people that have been your mentees and that you're actually been a supervisor for yourself mm. and how different people interpret the role of being a collaborator, the role of being an employee, employer, but that wiring when it comes to integrity, when it comes to loyalty, when it comes to that moral compass in a way in, yeah. in tiny situations like no. those situations that you don't think about but suddenly it's like oh wow some understand kind of where that compass should be yeah and others haven't yet experienced or had any models that shows that and it's not you know i don't know if i'm putting people in groups here but it's so fascinating how different people are but you and never know no you know. You know, you can get signs, but again, you know, I mean, most people are actually pretty rational. If you can get yourself to work, there's a degree of rationality that you're living under that's, you know, it is imperfect, but you can expect to have a reasonable conversation mm -hmm. with people. But as a manager, what you don't have, and except for whatever they share with you, is the real context of what are all of the things in your life that you're having to balance your energy mm. against. Mm. You know, I have had to confront a couple of times where as a manager, where there was a clear, what I think, you know, I, I tend to refer to it as poor judgment. I try to mm. avoid a value judgment, yeah. but you know, actually that was just wrong. What mm. you did there was simply wrong. And it's difficult not to conclude that there's probably more wrong going on and that it may you know i think ultimately it's like your behavior and your judgment are mm. you're either choosing to be with us or you're not right but it, you know it's enormously it's, it's difficult actually a really good friend of mine asked me recently how do you walk the line of having a very humanist view believing in human potential and really wanting to crack the code of how to develop people mm. to be their their best. If they should be here mm. in this context, how can they be their best? How can they bring the most value to the people around them, to customers or whatever? Mm. Versus sometimes you just have to actually be kind of tough with people. Mm. He said, how do you do that? And he yeah. was coming from a place he was really struggling with how to, we connect on the more humanist side. Mm. And it, it is hard, you know, how do you make judgments that mm. affect people? And right. how do you find, I mean, basically there is no easy answer other than mm. that sometimes you do have to turn up the heat and do it in a way that's humane and fair and transparent. Exactly. It's reasonable to say, I'd like you to do more here. Right. And that you expect it. I mean, it's fascinating what you're saying there, the focus on people's potential. There's always room for improvement and there's always untapped abilities. And yeah. There's more in everyone. I love the idea of how to facilitate for human capacities to show. Yeah. And, you know, given moments, people have different priorities. So when I was working on The Sims, I had no other responsibilities really in this world. And at one point I would work 
24 hours, sleep eight hours, work 24 hours, sleep eight hours. It was completely insane. And actually, my <laughs> boss at the time said, you need to stop doing that. And my friend did that and he died. And I actually got a horrendous speeding ticket, and that, <laughs> which was oh, a little gosh. bit of a wake up call. Uh, yep. But no one was asking me to do that. That was mm. my choice. I was motivated mm. to do that myself mm. i'm laughing because that's my life in a nutshell <laughs> <laughs> well, so you stopped doing that or when did oh you yeah no, I, I mean that was that was for a three or four month period yeah. at mm. when we were trying to ship the game <laughs> working 24 hours is not something i do very often i must say but, but. but i think the, the key is and it wasn't about discipline i mean mm. i was profoundly undisciplined. Yeah. I met my wife during this time and she came over for the first time to the apartment. I was kind of like, oh God, you know, I was coming in, passing out and leaving. And in the US, if they figure out that you might be a person who likes credit cards, mm-hmm. there's at least at the time, there was an endless stream of credit card applications <laughs> coming into my house and I wasn't dealing with it all. It was kind of like the house was filling up with mail in the hallway. I mean, there were must have been hundreds of untouched income oh, emails and she came in and was like okay this is but you know i mean i was doing laundry i was changing the sheets there was no <laughs> garbage or anything you know no. like that there was, parts where there was literally zero discipline but wow. the motivation my motivation mm. was mm. off the charts you know yeah and so i always really try to find you know, what are you motivated to do and what can you be motivated to what do you want to be motivated to do Right. And, and work with that and not focus on discipline necessarily. No, but rather let it kind of unfold as it naturally unfolds. And, and yeah. yeah. Wow. Do you think about that when you're working with younger people as well? And when you have people in your team that you're responsible for, what do you treasure the most? That kind of work ethic or, or do you more treasure that passion? And what about credentials versus potential? Like, yeah. What are the things you're looking for and what are your experiences with people who have very specific, particular skills that are kind of those doers that can do tasks at a really excellent level for that particular specified task? And then you have those others that might have this tremendous potential can go in any direction, but it's not really crystallized yet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's, yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. Credentials are worth something. In my view, as I said earlier, for me, the most important outcome of, say, getting a degree is that you learn how to learn. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't happen for everyone who got a degree. But establishing that someone is capable of learning, they have demonstrated that they have been able to learn difficult things and stick with it long enough to learn. That's one of the most important things. And what a degree ultimately does in the modern age is it's objective proof that this person can actually complete something. It's not the only proof. It's not necessarily a necessary proof in my view, but it is helpful when you bring someone in and it, you know it's very expensive to hire someone and right. very expensive if it doesn't work out. And we always want to bring in people who are going to thrive. And so most of the time, it's nice to know that they can complete something one way or another. But that could also be, in my world, that can be substantial open source contributions. There are various ways. But I'm always a little bit uncomfortable if I'm not sure that someone can complete things because Mm -hmm. in at least the part of the economy that I work in, it is important to finish things. Mm -hmm. It's important to bring value all the way to customers. The purpose of any 
company ultimately is to create value for customers. And that does require a certain degree of completion. But beyond that, I really kind of want diverse views. I want to be challenged. I want people who come in hungry and kind of want to be right. But at the same time, they have to be able to listen, not just to me, but to their peers, to customers. And some people don't really learn how to listen or maybe don't have a gift. You know, I think there's a range of possibilities, but I have found, well, certainly when I'm kind of diagnosing someone to hire, can they listen as a big part of it? Can they learn? Do they love to learn? However they do it. Can they listen? Are they self-aware? Are they going to grow? And how do they make decisions? As I look back in my life, whatever regrets I have, and <laughs> you, at the core of almost all of them, was mm. some form of confirmation bias. Oh, in what way? Just we fall in love with our own ideas mm. because we have faith in ourselves. And th there can be a variety of reasons. It could be a product of unconditional love. It could be mm. a product of being told that you're smart. It could be a product of achieving success elsewhere. Part of making change in the world at whatever level, at whatever stage in your life, are you're not going to change anything if you don't believe you're right. And the condition of believing you're right is exactly the soil in which confirmation bias thrives vigorously. <laughs> and so it, it is absolutely like a razor thin edge and coming up with the tools to sort of start to recognize the possibility and diagnose it in yourself and others, which is, by the way, one of the hardest influence activities. Helping other people recognize their own confirmation bias is incredibly hard. Yeah. Even if you see them. Yeah. 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 Because it's so baked in, particularly for people who are relatively high at performing, when it is exposed it can really trigger, you know, a kind of imposter syndrome sense, or mm -hmm. it can really rapidly undermine people in a way which makes them feel attacked or right. threatened or that their value is going down or that it's a big, big problem. And it actually is a big problem, right. but it's usually a problem that the consequences of which show up later, the time mm -hmm. delay. Interesting. So how do you deal with it for yourself? How do you detect it when you think about your own confirmation biases? I learned a beautiful trick recently. Okay, perfect. Which is to ask yourself the question, what would it take to change your mind? Ah, what are the conditions that would have made you think differently? Yeah, what would have to be shown to be true to you for you to change your mind? Mm. I learned this from, there's a decision scientist at Google who gave a talk that I saw mm. where she talked about this mm. and I can give you, come up with the name separately. Yeah, perfect. I found that very compelling. And so I applied it to myself. I kind of went into this situation. I, I know I'm seeing confirmation bias and I had a strategy for how to deal with it in myself and others. And I baked it into kind of a decision protocol, if you will, which is kind of this is what I think the reality of the situation is. This is a set of possible decisions that we could make. This is the decision that I believe is the correct decision. And then this is the counter argument against that. This is why that decision would turn out to be wrong. And then if it does turn out to be wrong, what would I do about it? And that was kind of okay, but it's not as good as what would it 
take to change your mind. And so I've really shifted into that. And actually, it's really, really hard. Is and it? one of the most useful tools mm-hmm. I've discovered yeah. is using ChatGPT to, to help explore the space to understand it. And I've used it, I believe, very, very successfully personally to say, this is what I believe, what would have to be true for me to be wrong? So you just state your belief and then you ask for yeah. counter arguments, basically, and, yeah. and counter evidence. Yeah. Yeah. And 20% of them are not useful, but the 80% are actually, okay, that's actually pretty helpful. And like that's a little bit off, but oh yeah, actually this other thing and very, very powerful. So you mentioned earlier that you spent a lot of time on different generative AI tools this yeah. last year and applied it to a lot of things and that you helped your workplace implemented in yeah. the, the routines they have there. Could you share some of the ways that you implemented it? And what have you experienced to be the most influential for you personally and also for the business? Yeah. I don't find generative AI to be that useful generating per se. So mm, much. And it is a little bit, it's definitely mm. a little bit helpful. And I can give an example of that, but where I think it provides tremendous value for someone kind of like me is summarizing mm. and providing feedback. I, I kind of worked through a couple of different ways of working with it. I have kind of a work process that's based on David Allen's getting things done, but it's kind of duct tape and wires and bamboo. It's very, it's kind of a fragile system across several different yeah. Apps. I love that. (laughs) Apple script. But when I have an email, which has an action item, Mm -hmm. I have automation so I can archive that email, take the body of that email, use ChatGPT to summarize it down to five sentences and create a to-do item in my to-do manager, which is called things with a URL back to the email. Wow. That alone has been dramatic. And actually, there's a part of me that's thinking about maybe I should try and build a product like that. Yeah. Like an app that does that that automatically. Yeah. Yeah. I would pay for it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, it's not really my strength anymore. I think in building (laughs) desktop apps uh, Mm -hmm. in a while, but that has been a huge win. And in the kind of role I typically am in, there's just an awful lot of stuff to read. And using ChatGPT to summarize mm. long or confusing emails. And I tend to work in international companies. For many people, English is not native language. And most of them are not now using ChatGPT yet for mm. professional things. And so I found it quite helpful to make sure I understood people. And asking it, you know, what are the controversial points, for example, things like that. Tremendous mm. productivity aid allowed me to feel like I was able to stay on top of more detail across a broader range without that help. But the much more powerful thing for me has been providing feedback on what I'm doing, mostly writing either emails or documents or you know strategic work. And I have a handful of kind of canned prompts where I ask for specific feedback, looking for evidence of cognitive bias, missing critical thinking, and iterating through uh, an idea, get feedback, and I improve it, get more Mm -hmm. feedback, improve it, get more feedback. It's kind of like having your own McKinsey consultant, you know, 
someone who's by. always there. A little bit dirt brain damaged, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And that also removes the risk of hallucination for the most part. So in a way, you're constantly improving or specifying whatever you're interested in. So you avoid those initial pitfalls of the program and the faults and the initial feedback. I feel like that's sort of what we do with humans as well. A lot of the time we misunderstand each other. People are communicating something and they have an intention and we are sometimes misinterpreting that intention. We might think that someone have this goal, but actually they had a completely different goal. Yeah. And sometimes we just need to continue the conversation in order to truly understand, oh, so that's actually what you meant when you said that. Exactly. That yeah. kind of iter- iteration and re- mm. refining process. But there's another point also that's important. When, you know, when people use ChatGPT to write things, you know, th- there are some funny cases out there. <laughs> a lawyer who cited a bunch of cases that didn't exist and got you know, <laughs> severely reprimanded. That's really bad. <laughs> when you use it for feedback, if there is hallucination, the mm. way the hallucination manifests is it's not feedback that makes any sense. And when you're in a feedback mode, you very much want to understand all the points and consider, mm-hmm. is this good feedback or not? It's a much, I think, lower risk approach. It's a really active conversation. Yeah, exactly. You're not asking it to produce whatever you want to actually have produced, but you're trying to actively engage in a thinking process together. So you're hands-on where it goes. And that... It's exactly that that kind of dynamic back and forth mm. enables a kind of psychological flow as well. Yeah, yeah. And that my opinion is that that is actually profoundly important and not as well understood or described. Yeah. But you know, the naive thing is that it's going to do my job for me. In some cases, that's probably true. But for more advanced work, it isn't there yet. But it can help you be better at your job. And that is not only through the input or the kind of brain damage McKinsey <laughs> viewpoint that it brings, but simply it is like pair programming kind of, except that it's not another person. I think it will become more clear in the not too distant future how actually important that is. You know, there's a lot of studies around people's attention span and it's depressing, you know, and there's all these things competing for our attention. Most people, when they are in an engaged conversation with someone, have no problem with their attention. Isn't that fascinating? As long as you're talking about something you find fascinating right here and now, yeah. you can follow almost anything. Really yeah. advanced language, really complex ideas. Even children can do that. If you talk with a child who loves, for instance, Barbies, whatever, <laughs> and you talk about the complex social systems of Barbies, and suddenly the child listens. And you can apply, you can kind of, uh, if you want to teach them something about morality, you can use that kind of setting or scene and yeah. those uh, actors in order to convey whatever you want to convey. And suddenly yeah. it's relevant. Yeah, absolutely. And as long as you stay connected to them, it can go on kind of indefinitely within you know, within limits. But most adults in that situation either lift it too high for them or themselves become bored and then the kid kind of wanders off. But when you <laughs> connect with yeah. the kid on their level, yeah, it would be hours. It's amazing. It's so fascinating. It's fantastic. So this was really interesting. And I feel like just going back to where we started, you have this fascinating life where you, there are a lot of coincidences that took you to the next level and next step, almost like you're a traveler 
And it, when you explained how you grew up, I was thinking like this nature boy suddenly ending up in this boarding school and like this traveler in a way that also is kind of a guest, but a familiar guest who gets familiarized with that environment and looking for the connections and looking for that community and a place to learn something. And that takes you naturally into something else. And when we talk about free will, it's interesting how much of it is free will and how much of it is driven by those coincidences where you feel like this is what I want to do. Like you met that guy at that restaurant in Portland and you start to talk to him about something. But at the same time, it's just by chance, like this is happening, this meeting and you go with it. And, yeah. you know, it's fascinating to see how you have traveled through life. You had this amazing, interesting career where you gotten all these opportunities by basically being open for whatever appears in a moment. Yeah. So a lot of coincidences. Do you think that travel or that journey that you had until now has been you being adaptive? to whatever opportunities that is showing itself? Or do you think it's been kind of your inner drive to learn more, to experience more? I don't think it's they're mutually exclusive. Okay, great. You know, when I read the wonderful book, Good to Great by Jim Collins, he talks about maximizing your return on luck. And that kind of struck me in many different ways. And that I've really carried that idea across the different spheres of my life to try to understand. Is it, it, like on the surface... It's a very common sense idea. Of course, whatever happens to you, good or bad, try to make the best of it. It's kind of almost like the Puritan work ethic or something. And part of my own personal development certainly has required me to confront a certain degree of victim behavior on my part from time to time. You know, whatever bad habits that I learned from my environment, from my parents that would hold me back. And that's certainly an ongoing constant process. But, you know, there's a, I think there's a lot to be said for helping people find the good mm. and without going to kind of Victor Frankl about it, that, but there's something to it that ultimately you have a choice how to respond to a situation that only you can take away from yourself. On the one hand, it's true. No one can take it away from you. But on the other hand, so many people take it away from themselves. Yeah. Helping people recognize that they're, you know, at the end of the day, you are the sum of the decisions that you make and the behaviors that you show. And your decisions are to at least some extent your choice that it's somehow less than a discrete decision, decision, decision. It's more like a continuum, an integral of sorts and good mm -hmm. decisions compound and bad decisions compound. But but there's still clearly something that is there that you can influence. And I found that many of the people, certainly that I've mentored or who've worked for me or I've really tried to develop, have at least visible to me started to take advantage of that and certainly be strategic or thoughtful in their behavior. Mm. So much of how the world responds to us is driven by our behavior. Whatever you feel, however you are inside, whoever you are, either isn't real if it doesn't manifest itself in your behavior or is irrelevant if it doesn't manifest right. 
itself right. in your behavior. You know, it's, it's like one of the kind of, there's sort of a meme in the kind of product <laughs> management world about outputs as opposed to outcomes. And one of the mental models that I like is that whenever possible, really try to think about what you do in terms of the behavioral outcomes that it creates. Mm. That if you do a thing and no one in the whole wide world does anything differently because yeah. you did that thing, then similar to the tree falling in the woods, like, did you really do it? And so trying to see the world through a lens of how, because, you know, a beautiful thing about mm. a behavioral outcome, it's very measurable. And this can be ridiculously simple things like a person coming to a meeting is a behavioral outcome. You know, putting something in a shopping cart on a website is a behavioral outcome. Someone mm. providing feedback is a behavioral outcome. I did the thing. Okay, mm. cool. You did the thing. <laughs> then what happened? And trying to help people see just one step ahead and thinking about that if you want to create any kind of change, whether like mm. literally any kind of change, as an employee of a company trying mm. to advance your career or someone trying to make a grassroots change in the society, it's all the same in that it starts with what is the tool set for how to bring others along right. to do something. So it's kind of the implications of your outcome, like next level, yeah. you have your outcome and then the implications of that are some additional changes, maybe yes. that impacts some small part of, of reality. Absolutely. And, you know, we do a thing to cause another thing to happen. That, um, that then costs something. That then causes something. I, I mean, I'm, I'm a little bit surprised how many people do not actually really, they sort of, sort of understand it. They would agree with it. But because it is so very hard in even simple cases in the context of a complex system to cause anything other than, you know, backlash. <laughs> And then and taking a slight diversion for a minute, that's part of why something like a flywheel, going back to Jim Collins, is so incredible to actually do a thing which causes another thing, which causes another thing, which causes another thing, which loops back to then cause the first thing. Yeah. That's like the cause and effect equivalent of, you know, creating life or inventing fire. Right. It is really hard. Like reinforcing, reinforcing, but yeah. in a different way. Yes. And then suddenly change it because it qualitatively changes its kind of nature after a while as the patterns are kind of slightly changed over time due to the constant iteration and yes. change. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. And asking people that, what do you want to like, even mentoring people with regards to promoting outcomes that have a real world impact? Uh, yeah. What I started to think about when you talked about that was that it's really connected to purpose. Yeah. As soon as you get really conscious about those processes and you see where your behavior ends up and what it ends up producing and, and impacting, then you also have that overview where you can evaluate whether that is, is purposeful. So yeah, that's a, I'm not, I'm not completely sure I understand what you mean by purpose. 
So in a way, you can evaluate the meaning of that behavior and its outcome, its impact on reality and on the real world. So one thing is to just have outputs that you're, okay, you're doing this behavior and it has these kind of outcomes or outputs that are kind of measurable. But when you start to look at how that impacts something else and how it trickles down on other things and in changing other things, when you look at that line of events impacting each other, I mean, I don't know if you think this, but seeing like how it piles up, I start to wonder, does it make sense to do this? Is this giving me any meaning? Yeah. Do I kind of, yeah, see that it has an effect, but is that effect meaningful for me? Right. Am I kind of contributing to anything here? Sometimes I feel like when you get that overview and really look at it and that normative aspect plays a trick on me. Absolutely. So I have a mental model for that. Maybe you'll find this helpful. So, you know, what a purpose, a purpose has a lot of purposes. Yeah. But one of the things that a purpose helps us do is to maintain a sort of constancy of purpose over time. And that ends up being something, it, it helps us avoid having to, or it allows us to make fewer decisions. It simplifies decision-making as we do different things. It's kind of easier if we can say, does this thing contribute to this purpose over time? Mm. And then if it doesn't, we don't do it. We've saved a bunch of energy, expense, mm. stress, whatever. And so the mental model I have in my head is that, you know, we're all pretty busy all the time. Mm. Employees are pretty busy. Academics are pretty busy. And if you think about, but are they getting something done? And so mental model that I like is that if you think about an individual air molecule, say at room temperature at sea level, it's traveling several hundred meters per second. Air is moving fast all the time. You put a bunch of air into a balloon, most people would consider it essentially an inert object. It's not an active thing. It will sit there and rest. Right. But inside that balloon is incredible activity. So if all of the air molecules in this room all decided to go that way, <laughs> literally blow the side of the wall out, I would be, well, dead. The purpose is a little bit like creating a breeze. It's not so destructive. Things are still going on, but just enough of the activity is contributing something which is creating some kind of motion over time. Mm. And like that breeze is enough to carry a ship across the ocean. Not in a second, but that purpose helps us make sense out of time and simplify and you know make a bigger decision once that then impacts all of the decisions that follow it, making them easier. And if we stick to it, the outcome is that we achieve the purpose. So it's just a wonderful tool that humans have that other animals don't have in the same way. I mean, a beaver may have a purpose in creating a dam. I don't know what it's like to be a beaver, and I I don't want to besmirch our fellow entities, but for humans, it's a much more plastic thing, and it's kind of remarkable. Right. Imagine something far ahead, and then see how everything, all the actions connect in achieving that. 
Wow. I could have talked to you for a much longer time. I was going to ask you some things, but maybe we can talk again sometime as well. It'd be my pleasure. This is wonderful talking to you. It's really, really fascinating. I was wondering when we talk about kind of purpose and, and all of this now at the end here, have you developed any strong ideas of kind of your big purposes and where are you kind of steering your ship or several ships to different directions or same directions or adequate directions? Where is life heading now for you? Yeah, that's a, a tough question. And I, <laughs> <Yes>. I think, <laughs> sorry, in part of, no, I, I mean, it's a great question. In part, I think, you know, when you describe me as a traveler, I think some of that was only possible because there was something of a vacuum there. I had a boss who who challenged me, you know, do you have a set of values as a leader? I realized that I sort of did, but I hadn't really captured them and thought about it. And I followed a certain moral compass and a belief in humanity and a sense of obligation, responsibility, but I didn't necessarily have a purpose. I read a few years ago that the, I think I sometimes get it backwards, but I believe it's the meaning of life is to find your gift and the purpose of life is to pass that gift on. Ah, and, beautiful. Uh, yeah, it resonated with me. And at the moment, that is how I look at it. Although recently, you know, I read this book, Less is More, which is about growth capitalism and its effects on the environment. And that is causing me to reconsider, should I have a more concrete purpose and be more, more values Based. I do have a set of values as a, as a leader, and they have sometimes caused some tension. I value inclusiveness, for example, and it really is kind of an inviolable value for me. And I've not always felt comfortable raising that as a point of objection in a tense situation, but I would like to get more focused. I try to leave the world a better place than I found it yeah. as much as I can. But I'm no longer sure that that, given the opportunities that I've had and essentially the privilege of where I sit in that world, is is that enough? I'm less less comfortable that it's enough. So it is a moment of transition for me mm -hmm. as I look at where we are in the world and what opportunities do I have mm -hmm. to create outcomes that will create good. I think it's a watch the space moment. So it's kind of a phase of contemplation and really considering and planning the next journey, yes. part of the journey in this thing called life. Yeah. <laughs> I was wondering, who are your most important inspirational sources? That's an interesting one because it changes over time and mm. I believe it will continue to change. If I really sat down and tried to count it is, I think it is countable, mm -hmm. but the, you know, the people who saw potential enough to invest their time in my development, and I think I've been very fortunate, a number of people have over the years, I carry those people with me constantly, mm -hmm. implicitly, and I think of them often, and I try to pay that forward and hope to be that for others. I've always had a little bit of a fascination with Bertrand Russell. I, I agreed with him much more when I was my son's age than I do now, <laughs> but I still have a, a certain fascination with how he ticked 
Richard Feynman plotting it. Mm. Yeah. I think my mother was a remarkable, you know, Western woman. My mother was part of the Constitutional Convention in Montana in 1972. Oh. And it, the work that she contributed to has been quite noteworthy recently. It has protected Montana from attacks against women's rights, especially oh. to abortion. It was a very forward-looking constitution. And it's been a point of intense pride for me that her contribution there played forward so much. And then more recently, there was a lawsuit where the constitution also guarantees that the state will protect the environment. And wow. there was a landmark decision about three weeks ago where a number of young people sued the state and said, you have to stop subsidizing the petroleum industry. It is constitutionally forbidden. And it was a, a definite long shot. But again, the Constitution came down on that. And I have to say, in a very personal way, I'm profoundly influenced and more as I get older, as I realized what a strong person uh, she was, who, who really had incredible values. That's and I also find my wife a remarkable inspiration. <laughs> she has taught me so much about love and humanity and the hard work mm. of loving someone and how very worth it it is. That's beautiful. And it's interesting what you're saying there. I love that. Like your parents, like your mom, how she suddenly becomes a source of inspiration. And she probably was before too and has influenced you a lot, but suddenly you're at a different time point and her influence is kind of reappearing yeah. in a new situation, which is fantastic. Her outputs generated outcomes mm. which have played out over decades. And I think, you know, I could only hope to be so lucky. Yeah, it's incredible. Well, like I said, I would have loved to talk to you for much longer. <laughs> and I would love to talk to you again. But thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. I'm really, really Mark, grateful. Thank you. It's really it's a tremendous pleasure. And uh, thank you so much. The conversation with Eric reminded me of how curiosity and openness to new experiences and opportunities are often driving forces for truly unexpected and rich journeys. By letting free our appetite for learning, we can become fully immersed in focused pursuits that take us to the next level of understanding and prepare us for novel, adjacent possibilities. Eric made me think more about how much of what seems like serendipitous coincidences is also connected with our choices and actions. One thing could lead to another by chance. Still, for every interaction with the world around us, we build up, strengthen and diversify the potential of new possible pathways rooted in the present for ourselves and others. This reinvention seems so complex and beyond human control, yet as brilliant minds like Kaufman have explained, we are agents that are both impacting and being impacted by the dynamic relationships with the environments around us. I hope this conversation with Eric Bowman can inspire others to think about this beautiful complexity and go out there and continue to try to create, connect, and harvest from their new potential. 
Thank you for listening to the Chameleons podcast. This is your host, Imak Samrana.